Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. We are so glad that you decided to join us again this week. This week, we finished our study of John chapter 16 as we enter the final stages of our series, Developing Disciples. In John chapter 16, verses 16 through 31, we had the opportunity to study the joy of abiding. We found that regardless of circumstances, an abiding disciple is able to find liberating and lasting joy in Jesus as they live out and share the gospel. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by what you hear. You know, most uh, most Christians, in fact, if you have um, spent any time reading the Bible about what it means to be a Christian or about the experience of Christians in the world, or even if you were just with us uh, last week, then you probably know, intellectually speaking, that, uh, that, that Christians, that following Jesus, right, being a Christ follower in this world means, means suffering, it might mean persecution, it might even mean death, right? We, we know that intellectually. I know that intellectually. I know it from studying God's Word. I, I even uh, may know that from uh, seeing experiences of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in different parts of the world. But if you are like me, and I think most of you are in this regard, we've never really experienced uh, the type of suffering that we see described in the New Testament, maybe even the types of suffering that we see um, in some of those hard-to-reach places across the world today. We, we've not really experienced that in a practical manner. We, we may know it intellectually, but we've, we've not really experienced it in a, in a way that is, is meaningful, where it really becomes real to us, right? Uh, our experiences just aren't consistent with what we see in the New Testament, of course, because we live in a, a free country that by and large protects religious liberty. But have you ever wondered how you would respond in that type of situation? Maybe if you lived in a country that wasn't uh, religiously free. Maybe if you were a missionary to a country where Christians are persecuted. Have you ever wondered how you would respond if your faith was to result in some sort of physical attack? What, 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 what would you do if, with this kind of pressure uh, pushing in on your relationship with Christ? What would it be like knowing that, that your death was imminent and that your enemies would rejoice at your death? I think most Christians have probably at least thought of this before. Maybe we've had a hard time answering it, but this is exactly what the disciples are facing in John chapter 16. We saw last week in the beginning of John chapter 16 that uh, Jesus is, is warning His disciples. He's warning them that from this point forward, uh, persecution, uh, martyrdom, not that they will likely happen, but that they will certainly happen. There's going to be a very few, if any, days when they're going to feel safe, right? Any day could be the day that they're imprisoned, that they're killed, that they're martyred for their faith. And, and history tells us that this was precisely the experience of all of these disciples, right? All but one of them was martyred. The one that, uh, that many historians considered was not martyred was John. And I think you could make the argument, John was martyred, right? His exile to uh, Patmos, it was a form of martyrdom. And so all of them experienced persecution and death just like Jesus had 
prophesied, had told them that they would, uh, just uh, in some cases a few years or a decade or two earlier uh, in John chapter 16. And so it became a reality. What, what they were learning intellectually became a reality physically. And to be honest, as we think about the disciples and as we think about their response to this persecution that Jesus had assured them would come, in our human minds, their reaction is really quite puzzling. Right? It doesn't really resonate with, with sort of our, our human nature or tendencies. Right? Rather than, than running and hiding for the rest of their days, this group of men ends up turning the world upside down. Right? Uh, they, they are into hiding for just a day or two, but then as we get into the end of John's Gospel and once we get into the book of Acts and all through the New Testament, we see how these men are, are living on the front lines of this spiritual warfare and even in some cases this physical, uh, this physical punishment and abuse for what they believe. And so ultimately they end up embracing their mission, but not just their mission, they end up embracing the consequences of their mission. But not only are they faithful, we see something else that's peculiar to what many humans would assume of this reaction. It's not just that they're faithful, but it's that they seem to continuously be filled with joy. They're continuously filled with peace and this level of contentment that just doesn't make sense to us as we see the physical persecution that they are enduring. Even with a death sentence hanging over their heads, they, they would continue to minister and serve with this unbridled passion and, and really appear to be profoundly happy even as they were facing execution. Now, like I said, in the book of Acts, this warning that Jesus gives in John chapter 16, it, it comes true, right? The disciples are indeed kicked out of the synagogue. They're scorned by the religious elite. They're persecuted by the religious establishment. In Acts chapter 5, they're brought before the high priest. They go through this series of questions about their activities. They're rebuked for their preaching of the Gospel, right? For their preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, that He died for sinners so that they could be reconciled for God. They're, they're ultimately beaten for that. But then when we get to act, the end of Acts chapter 5, we see that they leave rejoicing. They're rejoicing at the fact that they were persecuted. They're rejoicing at the fact that they endured this. And so they're doing the exact opposite of what we in our human nature would expect them to do. And so how does this relate to us? You know, in our abundance, especially living in America, in, in, in the abundance and ease of our lifestyles, if we're honest with each other, we still struggle to find joy, don't we? There are times in our life where we have a really, really difficult time feeling joyful, experiencing true joy. Right? We can, we can read the words of Jesus, we can read the promises of Jesus about having joy, but then we look at our life experiences and we look at all the things that are going on. We, we look at health problems or family problems or financial problems, and all of a sudden it becomes really difficult to feel any level of joy. Yet the disciples in the midst of profound poverty and in the midst of profound affliction, they were able to find joy. The reality is for you and I, oftentimes our circumstances really begin to dictate our emotions and our affections. We really struggle with being 
overly affected by the circumstances around us. If we're honest, most of us have reserved seats on an emotional roller coaster in life, don't we? Right? Somebody takes the last donut and we're depressed, right? Somebody saves the last donut for us and we're happy, right? I may or may not be speaking from experience here, but like we, we just live on this emotional roller coaster every day, right? And, and it's like one word someone says can have us going up the hill, and then the next word someone says can have us going down the hill. And we just feel super inconsistent in our emotions, and then a lot of times that means we feel super inconsistent in our experience of joy. And all of a sudden, the way we feel, uh, our, our emotional roller coaster is drastically affecting how close we feel to Jesus. Uh, but maybe not even how close we just feel to Jesus. It may be affecting how closely we're actually experiencing a deep and a profound relationship with Jesus that should lead to this eternally consistent joy. And so, when you think about these disciples, they're facing torture, they're facing prison, they're facing death, and yet they experience joy. And so the question becomes how? And we're going to see this morning that regardless of circumstances, a true disciple finds liberating and lasting joy in Jesus as they live out and share the gospel in their lives. That's actually what the second part of John chapter 16 is about. It's about how these disciples, in, in spite of the fact that they're going to face persecution, that they're going to face death, how they can still live lives that are Christ-centered, that are evangelistically motivated, and that are most of all joy-filled. You see, what's happened here in our context in John chapter 16, if you're finding your place, we're going to be beginning in chapter 16, verse 16, working through the end of the chapter uh, this morning. But what we have here is, as context is that Jesus has really just unloaded this dump truck of earth-shattering news on the disciples. He's told them about His betrayal. He's told them about His crucifixion. He's told them about their own persecution now. And He's not just said this as possibilities. He has offered these as certainties, things that will happen. You can take it to the bank. These things are going to happen. Now as Jesus is closing His time of instructions, in fact, if you notice, this is really some of the last real intentional teaching that Jesus is offering His disciples before the cross. As we finish up this series in the next two weeks, we're actually going to see Jesus' prayer for His disciples and for all believers. But this is really some of the last words that He offers as intentional teaching following these certainties of His crucifixion and their persecution. And so He tells His disciples He's going to do something in them. Right for them and in them that will bring this fullness of joy. A joy that, that transcends the darkest, that transcends the dreariest, most dire and depressing circumstances that they'll ever face. So He says, look, this is going to be the reality. Suffering will be your lot, but I'm fixing to establish, I'm, a fix, I'm fixing to bring to you and implant in you through our relationship a joy that will transcend all of these circumstances that seem so dire and so desperate. And so the big question is what does this joy look like? And so as we consider these verses this morning, we're going to find four distinct qualities of joy in this passage. And we're going to look at how each of these qualities, yes, of course, relate to the disciples, but how each of these qualities of joy should be experienced in our lives as we seek to follow Christ. So join with me. 
Reading in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you shall see, you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me, and again a little while, and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask Him and said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said? A little while and you shall not see Me, and again a little while you shall see Me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she has delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. You know, therefore, and you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father Himself loveth you, because... Ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again I leave the world, and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou comest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We believe that this Word, Lord, is exactly what we need. We believe that it is truly the only profitable, eternally profitable investment that we can make in our own lives. And so, Lord, as we consider this Word this morning, would You illuminate its truth by the power of Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might understand it, but would You cut to the quick of our very hearts, Lord, so that we might live by it, experiencing the joy that is only offered in Your Son, Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So the first principle that we're going to see here, we're, we're really just going to hit some of the high points of this passage now. Uh, there's a few verses here that really summarize the whole point for us. And, 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 and the first characteristic that we see really comes to the surface. The conversation begins in verse 16. But the characteristic really comes to the surface in verses 20 and 21. As you look at verse 20, it's this really unusual way to begin the promise of lasting joy. Right? If someone asked me to give a, like a motivational speech on joy, I'm probably not going to begin by saying, truly, truly, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. 
Right? That, that, like, that doesn't sound like the proper introduction for a discussion on joy, but it's exactly how Jesus begins His dis- discussion on joy. Listen, disciples, you're, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be burdened. You're going to be hurting. The world is going to rejoice because you are all of these things. And so it seems like this hopeless situation, it seems like this situation where that is the exact opposite of joy, and in reality it is the exact opposite of joy. But then it, then it even gets worse, right? He says you shall be sorrowful. Right? He, he continues to sort of compound the problem. But he says not only will you weep and lament, the world will rejoice, And so what he's saying is that those who oppose God and reject Jesus as Messiah, they're going to experience joy while the disciples are lamenting, while they're weeping. Right? I'm going to be crucified and the world is going to rejoice. They're going to be celebrating a great victory and you're going to be miserable. But then he goes on. And He promises them that their positions will quickly be reversed. Right, The disciples' sorrow will turn to joy. Right? The sorrow is only for a short time, but the joy will remain. And so we see here that joy is actually revealed in sorrow, right? Sorrow and joy are connected. In fact, I think they are consistently connected. I think they're naturally connected. You know, our, oftentimes, if not all the time, our greatest joys often arise from our deepest moments of sadness. That's... Uh, we, we can understand that because one, that's what Jesus is saying will happen. But two, uh, when we think about people's testimonies, we hear this all of the time. Maybe, maybe you have a testimony that where you have went from a deep moment, a deep period, a deep season of sadness into this incredible experience of joy. Right? We we say things and, and, and they're they're theologically consistent that, that the light shines brightest after the storm, right? Here's the point. Sorrow and joy, aren't, they're not just like two random emotions that happen to appear in order chronologically. Jesus is actually teaching us something very significant about sorrow and joy. Because Jesus understands the brokenness and the reality of this world is only going to result in one thing, sorrow. Now, best I can tell, all of us currently live in this world. Right? At least physically you live in this world. And so, because we all live in a broken world, our experiences, in large part, will be broken experiences, right? Relationships will be broken. Uh, Finances will be broken. Emotions will be broken because we live in our our physical bodies will be broken, right? Some Some of you have experienced that firsthand. You know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about our physical bodies breaking or breaking down, right? It's it's a broken world. It causes pain. It causes affliction. It causes sorrow. It causes sadness. It may even cause depression. But Jesus is wanting us to understand that this sorrow and this, and this joy aren't going together in this teaching by accident. He's acknowledging the reality of sorrow in this world. The reality that all of us in some form or fashion have experienced firsthand. But He's also acknowledging the equal reality of joy for those that follow Him. 
And so think about how incredible this promise is. Just as sure as you are to experience sorrow, if you are in Christ, you can be sure to experience joy. That's a really great promise. Right? We can wake up tomorrow and know for sure that there will be sorrow in this world. But as Christians, we can also wake up tomorrow and know for sure that we have eternal joy in Christ and that the sorrow of tomorrow is only temporary. And so as we, as we sort of break down Jesus' argument here, if you will, we, we begin to sort of look at these propositions... It's, it's almost formed as an if-then statement, but it's not really an if. It's a when-then statement, right? When there is sorrow, then you can be sure that there will be joy. This is a promise for all believers. Right? This is a promise for anyone, we're going back now, who abides in the vine. Right? We're still really talking about this theology of abiding. We're talking about the experiences of those who abide. We, we talked about the fruits that they should bear. We talked about the love that we should have. We've talked about the, the suffering that they will experience. But now we're talking about the joy of abiding. We're, we're talking about the eternal joy that, that, that overcomes, that intercedes in the midst of our temporary sorrow. Jesus uses this illustration of a woman given childbirth, right? Any lady who has ever been pregnant would love to skip the nine months of pregnancy and especially those few moments or hours of excruciating labor, right? You would love to skip that and just jump right to holding your newborn in your arms, right? Because it's tough. It's not just the hours of labor. It's all of the months leading up to it. It's incredibly difficult. And and so Jesus is relating this to what the disciples are about to experience. The sorrow is watching Jesus being beaten, bruised, what will ultimately be watching Him hang lifeless on a cross and seeing His disfigured corpse taken down from this cruel tree. It's, It's the sorrow of watching the Messiah die. They're going to weep and they're going to lament at His death. And the world is going to rejoice. But what Jesus is saying by using this illustration of childbirth is that the sorrow of His death is necessary because His death is the only way for mankind to be saved. Without His death, there can be no life. Without the sorrow of His death, there can be no eternal joy. And so as I mentioned, this this conversation really begins back in verse 16 with this phrase for a little while. Right, and it continues on. The disciples they don't understand what it means. They, they, that they're not going to see him for a little while, but then after a little while they will see him again. They're trying to figure this out, right? But the reason the sorrow will only be for a little while is because Jesus will rise from the dead because he will appear again. That's what he's saying, right? I'll be gone for a little while. I'll be in the grave for a little while, but after a little while, I'll be raised from the dead and you will see me again. And then this joy will be permanent. It will be eternal. This joy will be in you. And right, so, so the disciple's sorrow is incredibly real, right? It's, it's not a false sorrow, but it is only a temporary sorrow. They're Sobbing eventually turns to shouting. Their crying turns to cheering. And their mourning turns to joy. And so we think of this illustration that Jesus uses of of a baby being born. And if you've had a baby, then then you understand this all too well. when, When 
when you deliver the baby, it's, it's not as if you forget the pain. It's not as if you totally forget all of the suffering that you went through the last nine months, but all of a sudden it doesn't really matter anymore, right? Because you're holding this precious child in your arms. All of a sudden, all of it was worth it because, because you are holding this joy in your arms. And so the disciple's sorrow is very real. Right? It's, it's genuine. Their, their hurt is, is palatable. But as soon as they see Jesus again, it becomes nothing more than a distant memory. Right? The moment they see that Jesus has conquered death, then those moments of sorrow, those moments of pain, those moments of frustration when they were weeping and the world was rejoicing, man, it doesn't seem that significant anymore because it was truly only temporary and now they have seen this eternal victory over death. But then if we jump down to verse 22, we see, <clears throat> excuse me now, not only is joy revealed in sorrow, but joy is resistant to the enemy's attacks. In, in so many words in verse 22, we're, we're seeing that this joy that is offered through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is a joy that cannot be taken away from the disciples. Nothing can ultimately take this joy away, right? No one will take it in verse 22. Now, what else in life carries that same sort of guarantee? There's really nothing, right? Thieves can take away our possessions. Disease can take away our health. Death can take away our family. But what about joy? Right? Jesus is saying there's nothing there's nothing that can take away joy. But if we're honest, let's just think very practically now. Let's just think about our life experience and the, and the frustration of being human in a broken world. It does sometimes seem like people have the power to take away joy, right? Like I said, a lot of times our emotions are on a roller coaster that is drastically affected by just one word from someone else. Right? And so it really feels like people can take our joy. Unkind words, dishonesty, gossip, slander, cruelty... Right? bullying, it, it could be any number of things. They all seem like things that are simply designated to steal a person's joy. But Jesus is guaranteeing His, His true disciples, He's guaranteeing those that abide in Him that their joy cannot be stolen. Right? Because ultimately their joy comes from, from seeing Him again and knowing that He's conquered death. And so there's no amount of torture, there's no words, there's no persecution that can ever change that. But here's the problem. And here's why joy can seem so fickle to us. Here's why it seems like our joy jumps on the roller coaster of our emotions and sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. At the very root of the problem, we have a misplaced joy. If we place our joy in anything other than Jesus, then joy is going to feel temporary. Because everything other than Jesus is temporary. So for example, if you've placed your joy in relationships, ultimately those relationships will let you down from time to time. If you've been married for any number of years, maybe even for any number of hours, you will know that your spouse, as much as you love them, will let you down from time to time. You're going to get frustrated from time to time. Some of you are looking way too seriously at your spouses right now. There's a marriage retreat coming up in April. I would encourage you. Right? 
The problem is we're placing joy in things or in someone that is ultimately temporary, that is ultimately fallen, that is just part of this broken world. And when we do that, then our joy feels like it's on a roller coaster. And when that person lets us down, when that person dies, when our physical bodies begin to fail us, all of a sudden, we feel like we are without joy. But it's just because we have placed our joy in something else, right? If these disciples place their joy in something else, if they place it in relationships or in money or in work or in hobbies, whatever the case may be, then their joy can be taken from them because their joy will be temporary because they've placed it in temporary things. But since their joy is found in Jesus, His victory over sin and over death, and the promise of His ongoing relationship with them, then every attack against it is futile. And so listen, if your joy is genuinely placed in Jesus, then your joy will be undefeated in this world. And so if, if you experience a season where, man, it just feels like your joy's not there, then we have to understand what, we've, what we're doing is we're placing our joy in the wrong places. And sometimes it can be really hard to figure that out. Sometimes it can be really frustrating to figure that out. Sometimes we feel like, man, I'm doing, I'm doing this thing or I'm doing that thing. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to move my joy back to Jesus. But man, I'm still dealing with depression. I'm still dealing with anxiety. I'm still dealing with frustrations. I still can't get over the, the loss of a loved one or the loss of this relationship. And it's really, really hard. I'm not saying that it'll be easy. And frankly, I don't think Jesus is saying that it'll be easy. But what I do believe Jesus is saying is that His promise remains true. And so it may not just be flipping a switch for you, putting your joy from something into Jesus. It may be a process. It may be difficult. It may take a season of prayer and devotion where, man, you're just pouring all of your energy into it. And it may take some time, right? It may take some time to, to heal wounds and, and to get our heart and to get our mind in a, in a healthy rhythm of, of depending fully on Jesus. But man, if we stay the course, God's Word is true and it is faithful. His promises are sure and joy will come from our sorrow. This is the truth that we have. Listen, Satan longs to steal our joy. And because of all of the things that I've just said, if we're honest, we usually don't make it that hard for Satan to steal our joy. Because we put our faith in things that Satan has influence over. We put our joy in things that Satan has influence over, right? Finances, relationships, hobbies, all of these things of this world. It's, it's almost like it's almost like we take all of our joy and we put it in like this piggy bank, right? So imagine this. Imagine you take your life savings, you put it in a piggy bank, you put a note on it and you say, and you say please don't open, incredibly valuable. You take a hammer and you set the hammer in that piggy bank on Tunnel Road and expect someone not to break it open and take what's inside. No one would do that with your life savings, right? But yet, that's essentially what we do with our joy every day. We take this eternally rich promise of joy and we put it in this, in this fragile piggy bank of this world and we hold it out there for the world and say, here it is, please don't break it. 
Here I am putting all of my joy in this relationship. Please don't break it. Here I am putting all of this joy in all of my joy in this job. Please don't break it. And then what happens? Satan breaks it. And he steals our joy. And we're left wondering, why in the world? Why am I experiencing this pain? Why am I experiencing this sorrow? Why am I experiencing this hurt when Jesus promised I would have joy? Jesus promised we would have joy if our joy was in Him. Not in the things of this world. You see, Jesus didn't only conquer betrayal and persecution. He did do that. But He turned them into agents that brought about the disciples' joy. And of course, the ultimate fear, right? The ultimate weapon, the ultimate joy stealer is death. That's it. So many people lose their joy. They lose their happiness because of death in their family, death in their, in their, in their lives. And yet Jesus has conquered death. He has disarmed death's ability to rob the joy of those who follow Jesus. Very simply put, Jesus has conquered every enemy to our joy. And so if we find our joy in Him, we have nothing to fear. If we find our joy in Him, then our joy is impenetrable by all attacks that could be leveled against it. Listen, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that those who are in Him, those who follow Him, those who are Christians will never die again. And those who follow Him will never experience separation from Him in death. We may leave our physical bodies, but to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord is this eternal promise of joy and satisfaction found in Him. But then we come down to verse 23. We're really beginning to understand joy now. We see this reality that joy is revealed in sorrow. We understand that. We may not always experience it, but we understand that Jesus intends for our sorrow to result in joy. And then we also are beginning to learn, okay, what does it mean to have this joy that is resistant to the enemy's attacks so that my sorrow will lead to joy? But then look what happens in verses 23 and 24. Really, we see that joy is refreshed through answered prayer. Joy is refreshed through answered prayer. Without a doubt, because you and I are human, there are going to be times when we place our joy in things that our joy should be placed in. And the only way that we're going to refresh the joy that we lost by placing it somewhere it shouldn't have been is through prayer. And ultimately, through answered prayer, that joy will be restored. But I want us to, I want us to take some time this morning, uh, as much as we can, to really think about what Jesus is communicating. Because he's, he's brought up prayer several times. Really, it seems like almost at the end of every thought, here in this last little bit of teaching over the last few chapters, he's, he's sharing with them a thought. He's sharing with them at the main point. And then he brings up this idea of praying in His name and receiving answers, right? It's, it's this consistent theme in this portion of John's Gospel. But you see, the disciples' joy, it really transcends their circumstances and it flows from their reunion with Jesus and from confidence that they're never going to experience this separation from Him. So their, their joy... The disciples' joy in Jesus is really meant to serve as a foundation. It's meant to serve as a foundation for this house that they're going to build as they live on mission for Him. So that it'll be a solid, a stable house supporting, supporting them no matter what kind of storm rages on the outside. But we're even going to see as, as, we, uh, as we get into the end of uh, the Gospel of John, if you again study on into the book of Acts and even into the epistles, you'll see that there's a number of times where, where their joy is not just maintained, but it really it, it bubbles over, it overflows. And most of the time that is happening as a result of their answered prayers. 
And so joy will f- flow through them, right? It, it's pulsating through every one of their interactions. I think of it this way. A disciple is like a, is, it's like a whale that's been, that's been drilled deep into an underground reservoir. Right? A lot of you probably have uh, your, your own well water, right? And that well is drilled very deep into the ground, into a water reservoir underneath the ground. And regardless of what it's doing on the surface, you've still got water, right? Even if there's a drought, if there's torrential rain, whatever the case may be, if your well is drilled deep enough and the reservoir is full enough, it doesn't affect your water supply. And that's exactly what a Christian, what a disciple is meant to be like, what these disciples are meant to be like. And so as we begin to think about this, as we begin to understand this, we realize that the way we drill our well deeply into the reservoir of Christ is through prayer. Right? The, the more we pray, the more we, the more we engage in this intentional conversational relationship with Jesus, the deeper our well gets and the more full our reservoir gets. Till it just gets to the point, man, where it's overflowing, regardless of what's going on on the surface. If there's a drought on the surface, man, we've got plenty of water. If there's a natural disaster on the surface, man, we've got plenty of water because we are drilled down into the deep reservoir of Jesus' joy. That's what prayer does for us. And so after the resurrection, the first disciples can, they're not going to be able to like physically turn to Jesus anymore, right? They can't, just, they can't just turn around and say, hey Jesus, what do you think about this? Or what should we do? But instead, we see, we've already begun to see, they're going to have the privilege of going directly to the Father and asking Him whatever they need. And Jesus makes this promise that the Father will answer whatever they need. Now, the promise of answered prayer raises a few questions. And we've hit on this a few times, but I think it's important to spend some time here. What does Jesus really mean by this promise of, of answered prayer, right? Ask it in my name. Right? This is very simply what He's saying. When you pray something and you pray it in my name, not the Father may do it, not if you're lucky you might get an answer. No, He says the Father will answer. If you ask it in my name, the, the Father will do it. And so it, it brings up a few questions. I think the first question is, does this promise mean that God has to give me whatever I want? Of course, the, the simple answer here, the short answer is no. Because if you notice, Jesus gives this one constraining guideline for this command, and it's very important. It's very important that we understand what He means here. Both in verses 23 and 24, He says that we must ask in His name. Now, immediately this rules out the, the sort of prosperity, name it, claim it, best life now heresy that dominates Christian television today. But I wonder if even as Christians that maybe understand the dangers of the prosperity gospel or the name it, claim it gospel, I wonder if we aren't guilty of, of somewhat of a related misuse of prayer. I want you to do a mental exercise with me for just a moment. Okay? For just a moment, picture not me up here on stage, but just picture that there's a huge sheet of paper hanging up here on stage. Okay? And so divide that sheet of paper into two columns. One column on your left and one column on your right. And at the top of the column on the left, I want you to picture the word comfort. 
Okay, think, think about the word comfort. And above the column on the right, I want you to think about the word mission. So two columns, the column on your left, comfort, the column on your right, mission. Now, take just a moment and think about your most recent prayer request. If you don't have any recent prayer requests, that's a problem. You've missed the whole point altogether. But hopefully you do have some recent prayer requests. Hopefully there's some things that you're really praying about in your life. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about those things and I want you to take each one of those things that you've been praying about and I want you to place them in one of the two columns. Here's the criteria. If that prayer request works to advance the mission of God, then I want you to put it in the right column. If that prayer request works to solidify your comfort, then I want you to put it in the left column. And here's the reality. If, as you think about the prayer request, you can't really think of a legitimate way that it fits under mission, then it likely fits under comfort. So just a mental exercise, right? You, we're not going to raise hands. We're not going to go around the room. You don't, have to, you don't have to volunteer any answers. But just place all of these things that are sort of on the top of your prayer list. Are they in the area of comfort? Or are they in the area of mission? And I would encourage you really to continue this this week. I would encourage you to, to look at some of the prayers of the disciples in the New Testament and to look at how they prayed about afflictions. Most of the time, their prayer, if it did include a removal of the affliction, it didn't stop with the removal of the affliction. But it ultimately followed that the affliction would result in the glory of God. So those prayers would be centered under mission. In fact, you won't ever find the disciples, the apostles in the New Testament praying for comfort. Their concern was never comfort. Their concern was always mission. And so here's the promise of Jesus. That the Father will answer every request made in His name. But in Jesus' name is not just a mantra or a tagline. It doesn't mean that you just get to hold up your list and at the end say in Jesus' name and it'll be done. Right? That's using it as a tagline. This is not meant to be a tagline. It's not a secret formula. It's not a code to unlock the Father as a genie in the bottle that grants our three wishes and then we'll come back tomorrow and give Him three more. You see, if you define comfort in a way that's commonly defined in our society then what you'll find is that Jesus doesn't really care if we're comfortable. We talked about this some last week. I mean, think about what He tells His disciples. He tells them they're going to be cast out. They're going to be killed for His sake. Right? And we've seen that does... We've already talked about how that does, in fact, happen. But then what what does He say? The promise of answered prayers is given right on the heels of the fact that they're going to be cast out, that they're going to be persecuted, and that they're going to be killed. Jesus isn't being random in the way He's formulating this teaching. Guys, you're going to be incredibly uncomfortable, so uncomfortable in fact, that you're going to end up dying. But let me give you this promise, not just of joy, but of answered prayer. You see, these things are going together. They're intended to go together. They're not to pray for earthly comforts. They are to pray for the kingdom of heaven to advance in this world. And here's what we so oftentimes miss, especially if we're guilty of casual Christianity. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus taught us. He's teaching Christians. He's teaching abiding disciples 
to pray for the advancement of His kingdom. When He says, pray in My name, He's saying, pray for the advancement of My kingdom, not for the advancement of your own kingdom. And so go back to the list. At the very root, everything that you can possibly put under the category comfort is ultimately praying for the advancement of your kingdom. But everything that you put under the category of mission is praying for the advancement of Christ's kingdom on this earth. And this is the category. This is what it means. Praying, praying for the mission of God. Praying for things that advance the mission of God. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It doesn't just mean you say in Jesus' name at the end. You should. That's a good practice to implement. But praying in Jesus' name means you're praying for the advancement of His kingdom. It doesn't matter if you say in Jesus' name, if you are praying for the advancement of your kingdom, then you're not truly praying in the name of Christ because His mission is not your mission. His concerns are not your concerns. You are not abiding in Him as you should. But this brings us to the second question. How does this kind of prayer make our joy overflow? Because very naturally we say, well, the more comfortable I am, the more joyous I'll be. And so if I stop praying for these things that will make me comfortable, how am I ever going to have joy? And what what ends up happening in our prayer life is it often begins to feel like a duty and not a delight. And frankly, one of the reasons it feels like a duty instead of a delight is because we've fallen into a bad habit of praying for the wrong things for the wrong reasons. But the fact of the matter is, prayer is how we commune with Jesus. And it's in that communion with Jesus where we ultimately find joy. You see, the disciple's sorrow turns to joy when they're reunited with Jesus, right? That's what he's talking about in this passage. When they're in His presence again, all the weeping and sorrow while He was in the tomb is gone and their joy is reunited. It's revived. After His ascension to heaven, prayer is the way to be in the presence of Jesus. Right? He ascends to heaven. They're they're praying in the upper room. Right? The Holy Spirit is coming at Pentecost. And so to remain in Jesus happens when His words remain in us and we respond to those words by prayer. It's actually what He was talking about back in verse 7 of chapter 15 when He's talking about abiding in the vine. The branches abiding in the vine. But the bottom, the bottom line is this. Christian, we need to pray. In fact, that's not strong enough language. Christian, we must pray. We must pray. It is an absolute essential. But we don't pray out of duty. We pray out of necessity. We realize that the only way we're going to stay rooted in Jesus, the only way we're going to to have this well that's dealt deep into the reservoir of Jesus' joy is through prayer. It's not prayer as a dead requirement, but really our prayer ought to be a desperate plea. And Jesus, I just need more of Your joy. And Jesus, just show me more of who You are. Conform me more into Your image. Show me more about how I can be obedient, how I can live out the Gospel and proclaim the Gospel so that I may, more, I may be drilled deeper into the fountain of Your joy. So very simply put, joy comes as we ask Jesus to help us fulfill the mission that He gave us. That's it. 
Prayer gives us the power to do exactly what we are called to do. And here's what we're all called to do very generally. Now, we do have specific callings on our life, but very generally, all of us as Christians are called to live holy lives, to be a generous people, to be a bold people, to be a thankful people, to be a repentant people, to be a selfless people. And this only happens as we begin to plead with the Lord to work in us. You see, a lack of prayer brings a lack of power in our life, which ultimately turns into a lack of joy in our lives. You know, I think about, I think about prayer, a good way to illustrate the way we ought to be praying. Uh, I, I sort of picture it as the Wright brothers, right? Everyone is hopefully familiar with the Wright brothers, right? The first flight happens on the Outer Banks. And, and I, think about, I think about that scene, right? Because as they're waiting at the top of that sand dune to take flight, they're waiting on the conditions to be perfect, right? They're, 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 they're waiting for this perfect moment, for this perfect wind. And so I just imagine like Orville's laying there, he's getting ready to take the flight, and like every five seconds he's asking Wilbur, how about now? How about now? How about now? Are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? Right? It's this anticipation, right? He's just waiting for the right moment. And as we start praying in order to fulfill the mission of God, we sort of ought to be doing the same thing, right? As, as we're sitting on the precipice of doing something great for God, man, we should just have so much anticipation. Right? God, how about now? Are you ready to send me yet? Are you ready to use me now? Right? Just over and over and over. And all the while, God is preparing the conditions. Right? All of, all of the while, He's preparing us and He's preparing the conditions that He's going to send us into. And man, as we are just on the edge of our seats, constantly in prayer, seeking the joy of the Lord, then eventually He's going to say, the time is right, go. And this is the way prayer should be working in our lives. But then I want to close this morning by looking at verse 33. The very last verse in our passage. Notice what Jesus says. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. These things, what He's talking about here is everything that He said, for sure. But maybe even more intentionally, the things that He said since they left the upper room. Now for us, that's been several weeks back. For them, it's really only been probably an hour or maybe even less. So we've been spending several weeks on really this in general, hour-long conversation, uh, teaching that Jesus has had with His disciples. And so, the talk about abiding, the talk about His death, the talk about their persecution, now this talk about joy. About joy following sorrow. About joy being, true joy being an impenetrable force that Satan cannot take away from them. About prayer and finding joy in prayer. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you might have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Again, we're delivered this certainty. Jesus reminds His disciples that they now have access to the Father. In fact, He uses the title Father six times in these last few verses here. <clears throat> and here's the thing that we have to understand. Sort of the context... Right, the entire gospel context of what Jesus is communicating here. There is something that broke the relationship between man and God, between the Father and His children. We know that something to be sin. 
Sin has broken this relationship. And so ultimately as we come to the conclusion, we see that joy is rooted in a reconciled relationship with the Father. It's a relationship that was broken because of sin, but Jesus has now clearly explained to His disciples it's a relationship broken by sin that can only be reconciled in one way, and that is by faith in Him. And so joy is rooted in this reconciled relationship between us and the Father. Right? Sin destroyed the relationship of these disciples, of us, of all people and all of history, destroyed their relationship with God, but Jesus came, takes away the sin of the world. And so because of these men, because of their faith in Jesus and their love for Him, they now experience the love of the Father. Right? The sin-bearing sacrifice of Jesus opens the way to God and they are reconciled to God. And just like these men are reconciled to God through Christ, so it is true for us. You see, sin is ultimately the root of all unhappiness that we experience in this life. We look around and we understand that something is broken. Even if you're not a believer, you look or people look around and they, they understand that something is broken. Now a lot of people think if they fix a government, it will fix their unhappiness. If they fix the society's accepted ethic, it, uh, it, it, will, it will fix their happiness. But ultimately, we know the thing that is most deeply broken is our relationship with God. And the only thing that will ultimately resolve unhappiness is a reconciled relationship with God. And so here's the thing. This is very simple, but it's incredibly deep. It's incredibly significant for us to understand. And in fact, I would say it is at the heart of our mission. The lack of joy in this world can be traced back to a lack of peace with God. This world is not at peace with God. And because this world is not at peace with God, this world does not experience joy. And until we experience peace with God through a reconciled relationship through the sacrifice of His Son, we will not experience peace in this world. It doesn't matter what governments decide to do or decide not to do. It doesn't matter what politician is in office or is not in office. It doesn't matter what kind of marriage is legal or illegal. It won't ultimately bring peace. Those things do matter. Don't get me wrong that they don't matter at all. They just don't, they don't matter in relation to peace. All of those things could be as we want them to be. But until we have a reconciled relationship with Jesus, we still will not have peace in this world. Because peace is not meant to be a fleeting experience or a momentary emotion. Supernatural peace flowing from a newly restored relationship with God is guaranteed for everyone who follows Jesus. Everyone who believes that Jesus is indeed the promised Savior. And so what is our responsibility? First and foremost, most fundamentally, my responsibility and your responsibility is to believe in Him. If you have never experienced peace in this world, the number one thing, the most important thing you can do is to believe in Jesus. You have to be able to battle the unbelief and the doubt that creep into your mind. The things in this world and the things in this mind that try to convince us that Jesus is a liar and undermine our joy. As believers, you have to be able to identify anything that hinders your joy in Jesus. And sometimes it is blatant sin that we need to repent of. 
You may, even though you're a believer, you may have some blatant sin that you need to deal with this morning because it is interrupting that reservoir of joy that you ought to be getting from Jesus. But sometimes it's not necessarily a blatant sin as much as it is, and maybe even more oftentimes for Christians, it's just misplaced priorities. We've put our priorities in the comfort column instead of in the mission column. And so if you realize this morning, I'm not experiencing the joy of Jesus, I would consider how much energy you've been spending on comfort. And then I would fall before Jesus and I would say, Lord, forgive me for being concerned with my kingdom, for being concerned with my comfort. Lord, help me to pray the things that will advance your kingdom. You see, what ultimately hinders our joy is our habit, even as Christians, of really digesting, consuming what I might call the cotton candy of this world. The thing that is appealing, that seems sweet for a moment, that seems worth investing in for a moment, but then just like that, it dissolves and it is gone and there is no lasting benefit. Instead of digesting, instead of consuming the cotton candy of this world, we need to make the habit of feasting on the rich, satisfying joy that is Jesus. You see, we who have believed are in Jesus. That's how we experience joy in times of trouble, in times of persecution. Though we are still in the world physically, right? We live in the world physically. We are ultimately in this world engaged in our mission for Him. Right? We're in Jesus on mission in the world. We are branches that are connected to the true vine. We receive our strength. We receive our nourishment through the vine. And so yes, we will. It's not may. We will still have tribulation in this world. Things will go wrong. Your body will break down. Relationships will fail you. Finances will fluctuate. But in Jesus, we have peace. A peace that none of those other things can provide and a peace that fuels a joy that rises above the circumstances of this life. I want to ask Rebecca if she will come. I ask you, invite you to stand with me as we pray together in just a moment. I've already uh, offered the invitation as you stand. You, you know the, uh, the opportunities to respond here. If you don't have peace, if you've never experienced peace, the only way to find it is by turning from our sin, turning to Jesus. But even as a Christian, man, there are seasons when we just know we're not experiencing the joy like we ought to. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to come, deal with the Lord where you are. If you need someone to pray with you, get someone to pray with you. But really think about whose kingdom you've been trying to build. Really think about where your priorities have been. And so as we pray, as we sing, let's just turn to the Lord. Let's take an opportunity to drill our wells deeper into the reservoir of Jesus' joy. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for the joy that we can, that we as Christians should have in Jesus. But Lord, we come before You this morning and we acknowledge a very obvious and simple truth. We are humans. We are broken. We are frail. We are easily distracted. And so Lord, my prayer right now is simply this. If there's one here that's never experienced the joy and the peace of Your Son Jesus through salvation, I pray that today would indeed be the day of salvation.
That they would confess their sin before You and acknowledge publicly that they have decided to follow Jesus. Lord, if there's someone here this morning, please don't allow them to have rest or peace. Don't allow them to have comfort until they have responded to Your call of salvation. But Lord, for the believers in this room, who know all too well what it's like to live on an emotional roller coaster where our joy fluctuates with our emotions simply because we have become disconnected or have failed to rely as much as we should in the vine and Your Son Jesus. Lord, this morning would You reveal to each one of us the areas in our life where we have misplaced priorities. Where we have placed a priority on the comforts of this world instead of placing a priority on Your mission in this world. Lord, would You stir our heart to repentance and would You move us to obedience as You rob our minds of earthly concerns and fill our hearts with the concern of Your kingdom. But even for believers, Lord, we know that we still live in the flesh. We still battle sin. And maybe it is very clear in our lives that sin is in the way of our joy. Lord, break us to the point of repentance. Even as believers, Lord, help us not to rest until we've dealt with our sin before You. And may our joy be full. May our peace be eternal and may it be so obvious that the world looks at itself knowing that something is wrong and seeing that the deepest problem this world has is a broken relationship with You. And may we be catalyst that our neighbors and the nations would be reconciled, would have a reconciled relationship with You through Your Son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We want to encourage you to be able to engage with Locust Grove on a new level. We are now receiving questions. These questions can be theological questions, questions about the Bible, about biblical history, Christian history, church history, or even questions concerning contemporary moral and ethical issues. You can submit these questions in person when you enter our sanctuary in the vestibule. There's a box there for you to be able to write your questions and submit them. Or you can submit them online. You can reach out to us through our church email, locustgrovebaptistchurch at gmail.com, through our Facebook page, through our church website, or even through our podcasting platform. You can submit your questions directly to us at anchor.fm forward slash podcast. We can't wait to hear some of the great questions that you'll have. We can't wait to be able to answer those questions and make sure that the church, that the body of Christ, that disciples are well informed and well equipped to be able to go into this world and make much of Jesus.